turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome, folks, once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. In Orlando, as usual, Alan Dempsey, well, he's the engineer par excellence. And uh, then uh, we salute Andrew Herdliska, who produces the show for us. And then comes Trisha Goyer. Uh, She's our first guest in Little Rock, Arkansas, talking about calming angry kids. Uh, That's her latest book. And uh, first of all... uh, uh, Warm welcome to you, Tricia. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Getting to the root of anger, facilitating healing in a relationship with an angry child. Uh, Where did this idea come from, Tricia? What's the background here? Yeah, it came out from our own lives. Um, John and I had three biological kids, and then God called us to adoption, and we adopted seven kids, um, and six of them are from foster care, and they came to us between the ages of two, and then the oldest one we adopted was 15 when we brought her home, and really they had a lot of anger stemming from trauma, neglect, and being a mom, even though I'd been a mom for over 20 years, I didn't know how to handle with it. So I ended up going to therapy, getting a lot of help, and I just wanted to put it all in a book that can help other parents that might be dealing with the same things. Uh, you open your book, well, there are two parts, uh, understanding anger, theirs and yours, uh, trauma and the truth behind mad. Uh, that's your opening chapter. Uh, fill us in on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think so many times we don't understand where kids anger is coming from and often it comes from trauma and you know some people say well my kid's angry and they weren't adopted and they didn't face neglect but somewhere in their mind in their heart they feel that they have to fight against something they may be anxious they may be sad there may be a loss in their life and anger is actually an easier emotion for kids to deal with and so i talk about the three ways that anger displays itself and that is fight flight or freeze so fight is we hear you know the the kid that's um, wanting to hit you that's on the ground that's really showing those exhibits of anger that's very common Uh, flight is where they just want to run and I have one of my angry kids that she would run to her room sometimes she'd try to climb out the window she's on the second story and it made no sense but her body was just telling her you need to get out of here it's not safe Um, when any type of confrontation came up and then freeze I actually had another one of my kids that would freeze. You'd, you'd have any type of confrontation or she'd get upset and she would almost like withdraw into herself and sit there almost like a stone. She didn't know how to handle it. And so we just need to know that there's many reasons for anger, but they also exhibit themselves in different ways. And I was just trying to help parents understand how their kids might be exhibiting anger in ways that they might not know how to deal with. Now I want you to talk about anger from life stressors. What's that mean? 
Yeah, and I think so many kids deal with anxiety today, and it brings upon anger. And I think we are just a busy society. We have our kids in all types of activities. We're running here and there. They don't have a lot of peace. They don't have a lot of time just to be a kid. You know, they're in so many activities. And so sometimes we have very high expectations, and some kids are not able to cope with that. They are maybe more quiet. They don't like all that constant go. And so a lot of those stressors bring out anger. And so really it's just encouraging parents to have a humble heart and to look at their kids and understand like is this really a value to my kid you know there was times I pulled my kids out of activities realizing that even if it was a good thing it wasn't something they were able to handle at that time and so there's a lot of stressors we may not think about kids are always learning new things everything that we think is easy it's all new to them and just really taking a look at what is causing the anger and maybe there's things we just need to back off on or cut out of our lives Uh, what about this one physical issues that can fuel anger. Yeah, absolutely. So some of the physical issues, sometimes kids have food allergies. That it may seem weird, but that comes from anger or lack of sleep or not good nutrition. Um, all those things, we may just think, okay, this is just something the kid doesn't want to eat healthy food or they're just we can't get them to sleep. But those things really can change their body chemistry and can bring about a lot of anger. And I think these days with the electronics, kids are staying up later and later. And even, you know, preteens and teens, if they're having anger issues, I've had experts say, you know, really look at how much sleep they're getting because they might just be like really cranky toddlers in preteen or teen bodies. Uh, the next topic is uh, a parent's internal response to anger. What uh, what do you suggest? Well, you know, one thing that I really had a hard time with is dealing with these angry kids. And, you know, I felt like I was constantly in conflict with them, and we were fighting all the time. But what I learned, you know, through prayer and um, just really trying to focus on what these kids needed was it wasn't me fighting against these kids. It was me and the kids against their anger. So we need to figure out how to team up. And internally, I needed to realize that my kids are not my enemy, (laughs) but the anger was things that we could work on together. But then also, I never thought I was an angry person until I had kids, you know, screaming in my face or throwing things at me. And then I found my own anger was bubbling up. And first of all, it helped me to realize that it's just a natural response. Like when we're in that situation, our body will react. Um, Our heart starts racing, our fists clench up, and we have to work to control ourselves. So it means, you know, taking deep breaths and really focusing on how to calm ourselves down. Because our bodies, again, just like our kids, is fight, flight, or freeze, our bodies will naturally respond to our kids' anger. But we can learn to calm ourselves and to speak in a low tone. And really, the best thing we can do for our kids is to be calm. Um, When we escalate, then they will just go up higher, and pretty soon no one is going to win from the situation. Um, My guest, explaining her new book, Calming Angry Kids, is Trisha Goyer. She's in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Trisha, we've arrived at this topic, a parent's external response to anger. Uh, What are you telling us here? Yeah, so, you know, when those internal feelings start happening, um, sometimes we feel like we have to win. Like, we have to get them to respect us. We have to get them to apologize. But really, I just encourage parents not to join every fight that they're invited to. Um, A therapist... uh, 
described it to me this way. When our kids are escalated, they are going to push our buttons because they want us to escalate. And the reason why is if they can get us mad, suddenly they're the victim. They're the one saying, you're yelling at me. And it does, it no longer becomes their issue, you know, dealing with their problem. It becomes our issue. So soon we find ourselves apologizing and, you know, talking to our kids and saying that we're so sorry. And the, the uh, heat is off them. And so really when we are able to stay calm, then we can focus on their issue and their problem. So we win when we are able to stay calm. And also all in the anger, sometimes words slip out that we don't want our kids to hear and have repeat in their mind over and over and over. And it gets so easy just that, you know, you're so angry and how can you do this? And you're such a bad kid. I mean, these things come out, which we would never say when we're calm and really just controlling our tongue, controlling our words, because we don't want those things in our kids' minds repeating over, over and over again, um, because it will, you know, those negative things will really dig into their minds and dig into their hearts. Uh, Part two of your book is titled Helping Your Angry Kid. And the first topic that you write about, building bonds, uh, what does that mean? You know, it was so funny because when I first went to trauma therapy with my kids, um, I thought they were going to show me, like, how to discipline. And, you know, I thought it was going to be about the kid and how to deal with these angry responses. And the first thing the therapist had me do was spend one-on-one time. And the first one I took to trauma therapy, he was three years, almost three years old at the time. And she said, okay, this is your assignment. You're going to spend five to ten minutes every day. You're going to have a special set of toys, and you are just going to play with him. You're going to let him direct the play. You're going to repeat what he says. So if he's like, blue car, you say blue car, you, you know, or you have the blue car, and you're going to praise him, and you're just going to let him know that you are spending time with him and focused on him. And I thought, how is this going to help my child's anger? But really, when they know that we are there, when we pay attention, when we're listening, when we are praising them, then they feel a connection to us and a bond with us, especially with the adopted kids. This is really important. And so as we build the bond, the anger becomes less and less because they realize, hey, I like my mom. It's not just this, this mean person that is always telling me what not to do. She's fun. She spends time with me. She focuses on me. So building bonds, and, you know, for a little kid, it may be playing with Legos. For a teenager, it might be painting nails or going out with it and getting a smoothie. You know, so really that building bond kind of takes away those angry moments because you build a relationship with a child. And I think parents today, you know, we're so busy with work and responsibilities. We have phones in our hands that often the kids feel like we don't care about them. We're not paying attention to them. And that really makes them angry. Trisha Goyer, our guest. We've got more with Trisha right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Trisha Joy, uh, Goyer has joined us from Little Rock, Arkansas. We're talking about her new book, Calming Angry Kids. David C. Cook is the publisher. Uh, the next topic that we've arrived at, Trisha, stopping the cycle before it starts. Explain that. Yeah, well... 
One experience that we had was um, I was trying to tend to one of my little daughters. She was six years old, and she was burned really bad. And um, we were out camping, and I was trying to tend to her, and one of the older girls came up and said, oh, I burnt myself last night. I need I need that ointment, too, and grab the ointment from me. And I said, well, just a minute. Let me finish with your sister, and then I'll help you. And she exploded. She was angry. You never care about me. And she you know, packed her up her backpack and was heading off in the woods to run away. And I thought, what in the world just happened? Um, and really what that came from was a trigger thought. You know, she had been in foster care for about six years. And anytime someone didn't give her immediate attention, she thought they don't love me. They don't care about me. And so in that moment, when I was trying to deal with this very screaming child, um, she, she, that trigger thought triggered her anger thinking again, I'm not cared for. I'm not loved. Even though really I was just trying to tend to her sister in this burn and so really looking at kids and looking at their trigger thoughts and trying to figure out what they are. For my 15-year-old, it was that she felt she was not loved and not cared for and that she wasn't worthy of someone's time. So anytime I maybe I was running out the door and I was busy and didn't have time to help her or talk to her in that moment, all of a sudden this anger would trigger. So it was really talking to her and figuring out what is going on and what are you thinking about when you become angry? And those trigger thoughts will bring about anger. And when we can figure out what causes those trigger thoughts, then we can help our kids control their anger because then they can learn to change those thoughts. Um, so, for example, my daughter who says, my, I feel unwanted and my mom doesn't care about me and she doesn't take care of me, when she starts feeling those things, just teaching her to say, my mom cares about me, she loves me, but she can't help me in this moment, but she will help me as soon as she can. You know, So it's really just teaching the kids to take those negative thoughts um, before they explode into anger and learn how to turn them around. Um, and when our kids are emotional, knowing that we're not going to get through with logic in the moment. So as my daughter's running away and she's angry, you know, I'm chasing after her saying, calm down, calm down. That's not going to work. I'm not going to be able to explain to her trigger thoughts to her. But later, a couple of days later, when she's calm, when we're able to look back and reflect on that, then I could talk in logic and teach them. But in the moment, that really doesn't work. Uh, teaching kids to calm themselves is your next topic. Uh, what's up here? Yeah, and I think so many times, you know, we tell the kids, calm down, calm down, but we had never teach them ahead of time what that means or how they can do it. And so what we learned is to teach them in a non-angry moment how to calm themselves down. So one of the ways we do that is with calming bags. And so we get, just get a large, um, you know, Ziploc type bag, a gallon size, and we put some items in it, and that's their calming bag. So it might be Play-Doh that they can squeeze when they're angry. For older kids, they might have scripture cards that they can read. Um, there could be bubbles in there because when kids are able, when they're angry and they take time like to pause and blow bubbles, they're breathing in, they're breathing out, they're breathing in and teaching them breathing. So just giving them tools, like when you're angry, I'll say, go to your room and use your calming bag and calm yourself down. Mm. And then they learn, okay, I'm going to go here, I'm going to squeeze Play-Doh, and maybe they're really mad and they start smashing the Play-Doh. But after a while, they're able to get that anger out and it's, you know, Plato's getting the, the brunt of their anger, not mom, dad, brother, dog, <laughs> wall. Um, and they're able to calm themselves down. And, you know, we teach kids how to um, go to go potty on the toilet and how to use a fork. But sometimes we don't realize that we need to teach them tools like how to calm down. Calming angry babies, toddlers, and preschoolers. Uh, what's your advice here? Yeah, you know, so many times we think, okay, there's a baby that is, you know, we see that angry face even when they're little. So we know that even babies can have these emotions. And for babies, what they need is for us to be calm. 
And when we're frustrated that they're crying and they're angry, that is not going to calm them. But when we're able to hold them, meet their needs, and be calm ourselves, it's able to really help babies. And for toddlers and preschoolers, you know, we hear about the terrible twos and the horrible threes and all these things. And really, so much of their anger is they know that there's more that they can do. You know, they want to climb the high steps at the playground or they want to be able to do these things and their bodies are not physically able. So just, you know, being there and encouraging them, even when they're angry, to say, it's okay. You know, I'm going to help you. I'm here for you. I'm going to support you. And then also, you know, training them how to Instead of getting angry, saying, ask mommy for help, you know, ask me to help you climb up the big slide. And we could teach kids about emotions. Um, one of our daughters, when we adopted her, she was only, she was about five years old, but she had never understood um, her emotions. So when she was sad about something, she got mad and she would hit things. When she was frustrated, she would get angry. And so we really had to say, okay, you are sad now. When we're sad, we hug a pillow. You know, you come to mommy. And we really had to teach her how to handle her emotions. Because kids, I mean, that's just something that they learn like everything else. And we often don't take the time to train them on how to handle those emotions. Uh, now I want you uh, to move to this topic. Uh, Trisha Goyer is our guest. The book, Calming Angry Kids. Calming preteen anger. <laughs> I think this is so tricky because preteens are part kid and they're part teenager and they want to be adults. And so really there's all these um, conflicting emotions. And I think one of the things we could help is to just loosen the reins a little. You know, when they're little, we're used to telling them, um, you know, it's time to go to bed. It's time to do this. It's time to do your homework and really giving them a chance to start exploring. So you could say, would you like to do your homework before dinner or after dinner? And, and they still have to do their homework, but you're kind of giving them more opportunities to make choices for themselves just as long as it's a good, um, a good thing that they're choosing. We can give them choices on how to do that. Also, really help them to understand that they will feel many things. I mean, there's, that's the age where they're always unsure about themselves and there's lots of conflict at school. So you can feel sad. You can feel hurt that someone, you know, um, made fun of your shoes at school or whatever, but how you act really is up to you. And, you know, don't take it out on mom and dad when you had a bad day at school and just teaching them um, to, to think about what really happened, you know, maybe how they could handle the situation better next time but also not to let that anger simmer and not to bring it home. So it's really just you're preparing them for the future and kind of for the big things that are going to be ahead. And, you know, the older they get, the bigger the situations are, and we want to start training them how to handle the situations. Now, I want you to talk, want you to talk Trisha, about calming teen anger. Yeah, and now teens are hard because they are almost adults, and we know that pretty soon we're going to be, they're going to be out there in the world. And so I think really with teenagers, um, they are going to totally call us out. So if we're saying one thing and doing another thing, they're going to take notice. So we're going to say, you know, you got to keep calm, but they see us yelling at other people when we're driving. <laughs> we really need to first be an example to them. And then they know, okay, this is how mom and dad is handling the situation. They will learn how to handle the situation. Also, they're at the age, instead of talking down to them and, you know, saying, go to your room, you know, just sit down and say, like, what's going on? And I think that's a question we can almost use with every age. When we see that anger, say, what's going on? What's happening? Um, and we want to open that communication. And we want to say, you know, you're angry. I can see that you're angry. Um, tell me what's happening. And when we're just saying, you know, calm down, stop acting that way, we're not opening the door and we're not inviting conversation. So we really want to turn it from, 
talking down to them, you know, sending them to their room, to inviting them to have these conversations with us because we want them, you know, as they grow, we, we know when they get into college, when they become adults, they're going to have more situations that make them angry. And if we can just become that safe place for them, that we, they can talk to us and we're not going to be, you know, look, talking down to them and treating them like children anymore, that we can build that relationship that will carry on even into adulthood. And then a healing place for adopted and foster kids, you write. Yeah, and I think, you know, because we've adopted um, six kids, we really had to see our home as a place of healing and not have too many expectations on them right from the beginning. I mean, we can't expect them to know how to act when they have not been in our home, you know, for the first, what, 8, 10, 12, 14 years of their lives. And so really um, letting them know that we're a safe place. And so one way that we do that is ask open-ended questions just anytime, like, um, you know, tell me about what you want for your future and let them, you know, just sit there and listen to them. Let them know that you are there, that you care about them, and then validate things that they are really doing right. And I think so many times, especially with adopted kids, we see all the problems and all the issues and all the ways they're acting out. So when we see something that they're doing right, like, great job. I just appreciate how you went over and got a Band-Aid for your sister when she was hurt. And just let them know that you see them and you appreciate them and also that you're going to be there and support them. I think kids, um, many times when they've been in, in foster care and they come from really hard places, um, they don't trust adults. And just so showing up every day with a smile, um, you know, just giving them a hug when you perceive them. If they want a hug, just let them know that you're always there for them. And then also with my kids, it really has been opening up God's Word and saying, you know what, we're all adopted. We are all God's children. He has a good plan for all of us. Um, we are, you know, we are now part of His kingdom too. And, and getting them to see that God is a loving Father. Because sometimes when they're in homes um, initially where they didn't receive that love, they have a hard time seeing God as a love, loving Father. And so we could just exhibit that love in our lives, they'll be better able to accept and know God's love, too. And the conclusion is called the victor's crown. Uh, explain that to us. Yeah, you know, so uh, I also have my 89-year-old grandma living with us. Mm. So we have, you know, we have 10 kids, six of them still home, and then we've had my grandma in the home for 20 years. She's mm. 89 years old now. And she always says, you know, these are the best years of your life. And she always tells me, you know, you could look forward to, um, you know, eternity. And for her, you know, she knows that soon she will be with God. And so just realizing that all the hard stuff, even though it is hard, we have each other. We have these kids. We have, uh, you know, we're, we have a roof over our head. And just realizing that um, sometimes we just focus on the hard things. But she just reminded me to focus on the good things that we have now and also the good things waiting. You know, someday, even though it's hard, even though we're dealing with angry kids, um, we will be able to stand before God and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, and that he'll be able to reward us. And so even though it's difficult and we may not get the immediate rewards that we want when dealing with angry kids, that we have the victory in God and that he will, um, you know, Someday, if we lead our kids to him, we could all celebrate together. So that's really just the conclusion. I think so many times it gets weary when you're dealing with kids that have anger issues, but helping people to look ahead and seeing that there is victory. You know, if we can lead them to God, there is ultimate victory, even when we're having to deal with an angry kid at this moment. Trisha, now give us an update on your family, ages, and how's everybody doing? 
Yeah, you know, they are doing so much better. I would say we still deal with anger. You know, it's not like I wrote the book and everyone's all better. But um, our kids home are ages um, 8 and 8. They're, they're not biological, but they're both the same age. We have an 11-year-old, we have a 14-year-old, and we have two 15-year-olds. They're twins still at home, and I'm homeschooling them. And, you know, even though we have angry moments, they know better how to calm themselves. We see them calming themselves, or, you know, sometimes I help them calm themselves by just going to them and asking them what's really going on. Um, we don't always get it right. There's even times I still lose my temper. But overall, I think we are doing such a much better job at just being able to calming ourselves and interact as a family. And then we have um, four adult kids. So the 18-year-old is one of our adopted girls, and she's at college, and she's doing great. And then we have um, two adult sons that live near me, and then a daughter who's a missionary in the Czech Republic. And so, mm. you know, it's been a journey with all these kids. And um, I think also, even though it's been hard, you know, for our older kids, all of a sudden we have all these younger kids that we've taken care of and, you know, bringing in even anger issues. Um, our older kids have been some of our biggest support. You know, they're able to come over. Um, if my husband and I need a date, they babysit for us. Um, so, you know, it's really helpful to have this family, to know that we're all in this together. Um, even though, you know, some are adopted, some are biological, we're all goyers, and we all love and support each other. And I think that unconditional love has really helped some of the kids break down those walls when they realize, okay, this family really cares about me, and it helps them release some of that anger that they've been carrying. Tricia, do you like to hear from your uh, readers? I love it, yes. Uh, how do they reach you? Well, my the easiest way to con- connect with me is um, through Facebook, and so it's just author Trisha Goyer is my Facebook page, and they can send me a message through that. Also through my website, they can send me a note, and it's just trishagoyer.com. Um, great to visit with you, Trisha. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Trisha Goyer, our guest, Calming Angry Kids, uh, the name of her book. We've got more after this right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Trisha Goyer, our guest in the first segment, talking about her book, Calming Angry Kids. Uh, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, professor of English at Liberty University, is with us. Uh, Her book on reading well, uh, finding the good life through great great books. Uh, Karen, thanks a million for joining me. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Why did you write this book? I wrote this book because I have been teaching English at the college level for almost 30 years, and I am seeing a decline not so much in reading in general. I actually think people are reading more now because of the Internet and social media, but they're not reading as well. They're not reading good works of literature, and they are not reading the things that they read with a lot of skill and insight. And so I want to help them do better, and that's why I wrote this book. The subtitle of your book, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books, uh, what do you mean by the good life? Explain that. 
Well, today I think we often think of the good life as sitting on our yacht in the bay on a sunny day and having a you know a lot of material possessions and luxuries. That is not what that phrase means traditionally. Um, it comes really from Aristotle, who talked about the good life being the life that displays the most excellent qualities of being human. And Aristotle called those excellent qualities virtues. He said that the thing that makes us happiest is having the best character. And he, along with many other thinkers later in both Greek philosophy and in the early church, talked about a lot of different virtues um, that contribute to human excellence or happiness. And so um, I identified 12 of the most known and discussed virtues, some of which uh, I think we've forgotten today, and uh, address how they actually contribute to our happiness and ultimately the good life. Well, uh, I want you to talk about five of them, if you would. The first one is called prudence. Uh, Explain that. You know, prudence is one of those words, I think, that, you know, has come to have a more negative meaning. We think of it as shrewdness um, or cunning, and that's actually, those are vices. And like all of the virtues, prudence is the virtuous mean between an excess and deficiency. Shrewdness and cunning are vices on, of excess of knowledge, um, and uh, the lack of prudence ends up in foolishness or poor judgment. And so prudence is really just basically knowledge of the things that we should shun and uh, the things that we should pursue or seek. Um, It's a form of wisdom, but prudence is specifically applied wisdom. So it's one thing to have these ideas that sound great in theory, and this is how things should be, or this is the wisest course of action, but prudence is taking that wisdom and actually applying it on the ground in real-life situations, which sometimes, you know, requires um, a little bit less than than the ideal, um, but it's trying to navigate the best course of action given the limitations of any fallen human condition. Now, uh, tell us about temperance. Uh, temperance is, um, is different from all the other virtues in the sense that when Aristotle talked about it, he really was talking about just our physical appetite, because part of being human is having physical needs and desires, such as for food and drink and sex. We really can't survive um, as individuals or as a, as a race without those things, yet we need to desire them in proper order. So if we desire them too much, that's not healthy. If we desire them too little, that's not healthy e- either. And uh, but temperance is more than just restraint. Temperance isn't desiring that second cupcake, but not indulging. Temperance is actually not desiring that second cupcake at all, so that our our actual desires are in order um, and regulated, um, and so that we can enjoy things in proper proportion, neither too little nor too much. My guest, joining us from Liberty University, English professor Dr. Karen swallow prior uh karen here's another virtue the third one i want you to talk about called courage yeah that's you know that is one i think that we have really forgotten what it is because we 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 see a lot of things 
that are bold or brazen and we call them courageous, but courage, like all of the other virtues, actually has to be tied to the other virtues. So in other words, courage is an act of, of, of boldness, but it, is not, it cannot be reckless in order to be virtuous courage. Um, and so it avoids cowardice, which is the deficiency of, of courage, but it ha- always has to be tied to preserving some good. So an act is, cannot be considered courageous unless, unless it preserves good. Um, so we could never say that someone in, um, in Nazi Germany who did a bold act was acting courageously because he was not preserving good. Um, it's really just the habit of uh, facing difficulties well, um, and we can only face them well if we are doing good at the same time. Uh, the fourth virtue is called kindness. Uh, tell us about that. Well, kindness is essentially the habit of treating others as though they are our family. Um, kindness comes from the same word that uh, kin comes from, which, you know, is a, a nice southern term for family. And so to be kind is to treat someone as though they are family, which is not the same thing as just being nice or polite. Because anybody who's part of a family knows that, you know, sometimes, you know, we're, we have to give tough love. We have to be honest. Um, sometimes it's not fun or nice to be part of a family, but to be kind is to treat others like that and to take joy in their joys and to feel sorrow at their sorrows um, and to um, treat all people as though they were our family. That's ultimately what, what it means to be kind. And uh, then comes humility. Uh, fill us in. Yeah, humility is another virtue that I think is has been uh, misunderstood uh, these days because we think of humility as just thinking um, of oneself in a low way and um, having disregard for oneself and being selfless. Actually, the virtue of humility moderates between that extreme of being totally selfless and the extreme of being selfish. So true humility is actually an accurate assessment of oneself based in reality, which means that it's an acceptance of one's weaknesses, but it's also an acceptance of one's strengths. One is humble when one accepts what one is good at as well as what one is not good at. And so we really need to know ourselves in order to be humble, Um, and that includes the good and the bad. Uh, You write this. Uh, in your book, to read well is not to scour books for lessons on what to think. Rather, to read well is to be formed in how to think. Uh, Can you expand on that? Sure. So, you know, even though I talk about these different virtues that I see in various works of literature, I match up each one of those virtues I talked about and others with a work of classic literature, um, reading you know, we, we don't just read a book or a great work of literature to find a lesson or the moral at the end of the story, as we have in something like Aesop's Fables. When we're reading great literary fiction in particular, or even poetry, um, we actually are being formed as we read, because literary reading requires us to um, to be patient, it requires us to be humble, it requires us to 
um, see the world through the eyes of that narrator. It requires us also to judge the characters and situations that we encounter. Um, and great literary works are great uh, most of the time because they present complicated characters who, though we might be rooting for them and we might uh, identify with them, they're still imperfect and they make bad decisions and they grow along the way. So when we read, we actually are growing along with them. We're making judgments and assessments as we go along, making the same mistakes that the, that the hero makes um, and learning from them. So we are actually practicing character development and virtue when we read well. Uh, you continue on in your book uh, with um, virtues. Um, how about this one? Faith. The virtue of faith. Uh, what do you write about it? Explain that. Well, faith is um, in the section of the book uh, that includes the theological virtues. Yes. Faith, hope, and love. Yes. yes. And they're a little bit different because the other virtues are ones that all human beings um, have by virtue of being human. The theological virtues are ones that um, Christians understand to begin with God. They are gifts of God, and we cannot really have them um, in the sense that I'm using them in the book um, until they come from God. But they can, we can still practice them. We can still improve and mature them. So faith, ultimately, and I, you know, I focus on um, the um, just the devastating and yeah, beautiful novel *Silence* by Shusaku Endo, um, and uh, and that novel presents a real test of faith that I don't think any of us in real life would ever um, have to be faced with. Although there are certainly Christians throughout the world who've had horrific tests of faith faith like this. And ultimately, faith, um, as I find it in discovering it in this book and through research of great theologians and philosophers who know more than I do, is ultimately the utter dependence on God. And as simple as that sounds, it's very difficult to do because we are always relying on ourselves and always second-guessing ourselves and trying to figure out if we're doing things right, or even if we are believers and we love God, we're still trying to figure out if we're doing enough or doing it in the right way or pleasing him, which are all good things. But ultimately, putting all of our faith and dependency on him is what faith is. Uh, then the, uh, the next virtue is called hope. Uh, tell us about that. Yes, well, I chose, um, again, another dark and sort of despairing novel, um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, mm -hmm. uh, to talk about hope. Uh, because it presents a world that is as hopeless as you might find in any work of literature. It's a, it's a dystopian, post-apocalyptic world where almost all human life has been wiped out by some unspecified disaster. Um, and the story centers on a man and a boy um, traveling, trying to preserve their own lives, especially the man wants to preserve the life of his boy, um, and they, he keeps telling the boy that they need to carry the fire, um, which I, I, it could be many things, um, but one of the things that it is is hope. And even in this very despairing world that lacks so many of the things that we would associate with the good life, this man and boy find goodness. Um, they find hope. It's hope that keeps them going on, that, that helps the man to 
keep trying to overcome obstacles in pursuit of a good thing. Um, And I think it presents a very powerful picture of the hope we all ultimately choose to practice or not, because hope, like all of the virtues, is a, is a choice. Um, sometimes it's a hard choice, but we can choose it or not, and we can cultivate it or not. Now, the virtue of love. Yes. So the love that I talk about in the book is not um, romantic love or erotic love. It is um, agape love. It's the love that um, Aristotle says we actually all need in order to be human because we are created as social creatures and we need companionship. We need friendship. We need love. Um, This is actually one of my favorite chapters, I think. Um, I examine the virtue of love uh, in uh, Leo Tolstoy's um, short novel or long short story, um, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Um, And it's the story of a man who is, you know, his whole life has been driven by materialism and worldly success, and he's married and had children and has acquaintances and colleagues. Um, He has everything, but he doesn't have love, and he doesn't realize it's even missing until he experiences, well, actually it's like a, a literal and metaphorical fall, um, that um, turns out to be fatal, and it is only when he is dying that he discovers what true love is. My guest, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, her book on reading well. More with Karen right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Oh, yeah. Patience is the one I probably struggle with the most personally. Um, you know, patience has an interesting um, etymological root because um, it, the word actually means suffering. Um, and so that's why we call someone in, a, in the hospital a patient, because they are someone who, who suffers. And so the virtue of patience is the habit of bearing suffering well. Um, if we are alive, we cannot avoid suffering um, in our lives, whether it's great or small. So that's not a choice. We will all suffer um, from time to time or many times. And... Um, patience allows us to do as we develop that virtue is it allows us to bear suffering without doing further wrong or causing other people to suffer. And that's a really hard thing to do um, because, you know, we will suffer, but how we suffer um, is the only choice that we, we have. And so I examined that virtue in Jane Austen's last novel, Persuasion, um, about a young woman who suffers because she thinks that her love is long lost and she will die an old maid, um, but she bears that suffering well, and as a result, she does find love again. What is your advice to people listening who think, boy, I better start doing more reading? Uh, <laughs> how, how, do, how do they get started? Give them a word of encouragement. Yeah, so I, I do want to encourage people who maybe feel frustrated or they don't have enough time and it's, it's so hard to, to add one more thing into our busy lives. And I would say 
just, um, you know, again, it's reading is a virtue. Reading well is a virtue. And that means it's a ha- it begins with a habit. So just set aside a certain number of minutes a day or an hour a week. Um, if you read ten, a book 10 or 15 minutes a day, then you will get through it at some point. Um, I also encourage people to read slowly. Um, it's not a race. We're, we, so much of the reading that we do today is fast and quick. It's on the Internet. It's a news story, and we just skim through it. Reading well requires reading slowly and chewing on the ideas, chewing on the words, enjoying the words. Literary writing is beautiful and well-crafted, and it is to be enjoyed the way a, a painting in a museum should be enjoyed. So I say read slowly, develop a habit of reading, no matter how small that habit is, um, and um, join a book club, maybe. That's another way of just being accountable and, and being able to discuss the works of literature. I do include discussion questions in the back of this book that you can use alone if you read it or in a book club, um, because reading a good book is, by its nature, participating in a conversation. You're having a conversation with the author who's having a conversation with authors that came before him. And so treat it as a conversation, whether it's a silent one by yourself or one that you take part of in a, in a book club, a real one or an online book club. There are lots of those as well. Why do you urge people to read with a pen or highlighter marking in books? Yes, I do. Um, now, of course, we you know we should read for pleasure. And sometimes when I'm on a, on a plane, I'm just reading, and I don't have a pen in my hand. But um, when we're really reading to understand and also to enjoy, um, especially difficult works like classic works of literature, if you have a pen in hand, you it forces you and you mark things, you underline sentences that delight you or sentences that confuse you or make a note in the margin, it focuses your attention. It helps you to engage in that kind of conversation I was talking about more because you're interacting with the book. Um, And it also just helps you to remember more because you are underlining or marking or making notes. And then years later, when you go back and pick up and reread that great book, because great books are um, defined by the fact that they are eminently rereadable, um, you can find your notes and underlines and add to them. And again, it's like picking up a conversation that you had um, with a friend a long time ago. Fill us in on Liberty University to those who have never been there. Liberty University is in um, the heart of Virginia, central Virginia, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's just beautiful. It is the world's largest evangelical Christian university um, with about 16,000 residential undergraduate students on campus and uh, about 100,000 students online. So there are people all around the world um, taking classes at Liberty um, and a good number of them on campus every day. My uh, my guest, and she has been delightful, so glad that we could visit with Dr. Karen Swallow <coughs> Pryor. Excuse me. Karen, a million thanks. Glad we could visit. You've helped us immensely with some wonderful insights on your book on reading well. Go get it, folks. All the best to you, Karen. Thanks so much. You too. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Just a reminder, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. 
in Orlando. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Trisha Goyer was our first guest in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, talking about her book, Calming Angry Kids. And then Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor uh, plugged in with us from uh, Liberty University in Virginia, talking about her book on reading well. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, check out uh, one of my most recent books. It's called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. We take a in-depth look at uh, the great John Wooden and the summer camps that he ran for so many years in the L.A. area. And so much to learn from the life and the approach of John Wooden. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at the same time where faith comes by hearing. 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word.